Access to sunlight makes people healthier, parks greener and cities stronger. This is not lofty conjecture. It is a statistical reality backed up by data. A city that fails to keep its built and natural environments in balance leaves itself vulnerable to the worst threats facing humanity, from the obesity epidemic to climate change. So that's a quote from Bright Ideas, New York City's Fight for Light. It's a document that came out in October 2019, and it's really dealing with the role that daylight and sunlight plays in the public realm. So welcome to episode four of Light Season Architecture. And in this episode, we're exploring daylight and sunlight. Um, in the previous episodes, we've sort of looked into a lot of electric lighting and talked about that and the relationship with architecture. However, within this episode, we thought it'd be good to focus on daylight and sunlight for the first time. So, so why do you think this is important, Anthony? The reason why this topic is so fascinating to me in particular is that daylight at the public realm uh, in dense cities, I think is something that is being compromised as a result of uh, the demand for very, very tall buildings, very closely located. And, you know, in a city like New York, where the streets are not particularly wide, the, the, the reality is that those streets are being compromised. They're just not getting the same access to daylight as they once would have. So what are the ramifications? You know, are there any ramifications? Is that just the just the re, the the reality of being in a dense city that that access to daylight at ground level is compromised? Well, I think yeah. Once we started researching this topic, it was there was a document that sort of s- sort of started a lot of interest in it, which was um, Bright Ideas, which was released by the Municipality of Arts in New York, um, which. Is a document that was released last year, and it's basically uh, it formulates a response to these super high, super thin, tall towers being developed in New York, and it sort of gives a, a a whole history as to how we've got to this point that's allowed them to be developed. Um, and then, it, I mean, this this started the whole conversation between us, and then we started researching William White and other people and people that have done a lot of research into the public realm and what constitutes successful space within the public realm, what things you need in there and what things you can't do without. Um, and having these super tall skyscrapers all fighting for light at the high level and fighting for views, most of them, uh, you know, they're, they're selling these views that are, you know, panoramic at, you know, 900 feet in the sky. Um, but this is all at the expense of um, the amenity at the ground plane. I mean, a simple way of thinking about it is that light, which is, you know, coming from the sun, um, is, you know, hit, coming in at a certain angle. It either hits a tall building or it finds its way down at street level. So in a funny kind of way, we're trading our access to light at ground level for commercial real estate. We know that uh, the idea of being in a glass box with beautiful views, access to daylight on all four sides, if you're you know, wealthy enough to be able to afford that, um, commands uh, a premium, uh, premium value for prospective buyers. And in a place like New York, that is particularly desirable. So there is enormous pressure to build upwardly uh, and gain that light and gain those views in order to maximise the return on your investment. So 
let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's have a look at the history of New York planning um, and regulations that have been introduced. Um, and the first sort of precedent that we sort of stumbled across in terms of development affecting other developments in terms of taking away its sunlight and daylight amenity was in 1915 in the Equitable Building, which was a, a 42-storey high building. It was sort of two towers with a sort of a, a void in the middle or a, a setback. Um, it was an enormous building for its day. It's on Broadway in Lower Manhattan. And it had about 1.2 million square foot of office area um, once completed. And this building, it really, it really caused a, a huge issue because it, it wasn't set back from the street, but it, it was so high. Like it was 350, I oh know, sorry, 538 feet high. Um, and it cast shadows along Broadway, like about 300 meters down either way. I mean, a 42-storey building, you know, in today's term is, is, is a large building. And, you know, for 1915, I, I doubt that the population, many populations around the world would have been, you know, uh, just ready for that kind of building. And it was a very boxy building, uh, a very rational building, and it really paid no respect to its adjacent, uh, adjacent buildings, to the street level or anything like that. So... And it probably it wouldn't have even occurred to the to the original architects and planners that this would be an issue, because we simply weren't used to building at that kind of level um, before. So a new set of problems started to emerge: yeah, daylight correct. in the urban environment. Mm. And I mean, it's it's kind of a, it's it's interesting because I mean, the, obviously, the developers put this forward and built it as a you know. A premium office building but then all of the buildings that surrounded it and were adjacent to it because they were becoming overshadowed due to this building they started to lose tenants and tenants started to move out and into other areas of the city because they lost the access to daylight and sunlight in their towers and therefore the value of their rental uh, went down so to say this was the first time that you know daylight um or building form was regulated to maintain access to daylight is perhaps not correct because we, we, we do see regulations occurring throughout history that regulate the built environment to maximise daylight at street level or for adjacent buildings. But I think this is where we start to see it happening in at the urban scale, at the town planning scale, where the design of the building has to be changed or the, the guidelines or the regulations that we have to put in place have to be changed in order to maintain public amenity at ground level and for adjacent buildings. So uh, I think very shortly after this building was, was complete, 1915, the building was complete. In 1916, a new set of regulations come into effect. And those regulations essentially are pretty simple to understand. The, the, the taller you go the more you need to be set back from the street. So you get this kind of wedding cake wedding cake style of building. So you go up, you go in, you go up and you go in. So you can go as high as you like, but you have to you have to set it further away from the street. Yeah, correct. And this this sort of changed depending on the width of the street because it was all um, based on taking a point taking from the center point of the street and at an incident angle and taking that across your building site so you know the wider the street the sort of 
less you had to set back in terms of the degree of the higher levels of your building. I think the interesting thing about this regulation is that it, it perhaps didn't increase the amount of daylight at ground level, so to speak. I think it gave a sense that there was less visual bulk um, you know, with the buildings that were presenting themselves to the street. It gave you more of a view to the sky um, and you know, it you know, possibly does, does increase the amount of daylight that does occur, but I think it would be re relatively marginal. But I think the psychological effect of seeing the building step away from the street would have had a huge benefit to just the way that the street actually felt. Yeah, correct. And that's the, I think they call it the sky exposure plane mm. or sort of that, that vista that you get from street level when looking up. And that, that, that was, was all based on. Because and, that, and that regulation really drives the form of building that we see in the 1930s and the 1940s in New York. We see that stepped facade, you know, and, and all buildings seem to take it on as a, as a kind of a style that kind of fits in with the sort of new modern aesthetic that was emerging at that stage. Uh, the Art Deco uh, style, um, even you know buildings like the Chrysler Building and the and, and the Empire State Building, as they go up, they step in. They go up and they step in, and then it's crowned with a, a kind of pinnacle on top. So the regulation, to some extent, uh, delivers a kind of style, if you like, that that is um, very much uh, associated with New York of that period. Mm. So you get a lot of buildings that, that look very similar to one another as well because you've got the same line that you need to all compete against. So you also get this uh, architectural exploration in how to make your building look different but you know, set it back to the same standards as everyone else. So I think we can say that that style, if you like, and that, that approach you know, survived pretty well. Mm, and it's interesting. I mean... It only took one year for that regulation to be introduced mm -hmm. post the equitable building and the issues that it caused. So that, that's quite a, like in today's standards, if you have an, an issue within your city, then you have one year later, you have a standard that's introduced and becomes mandatory. That's extremely fast. Like we wouldn't see that measure being taken today unless it caused, I don't know, dramatic effect on something. Mm. It, it, it's but, unlikely, isn't it? But... Um, takes years now for regulation I, I to would come have thought in. so. I mean, these, these things are still hotly contested. You know, daylight in, in the public realm is still a contentious issue all around the city, you know, uh, public spaces, parks in particular, rivers, um, beaches, things like that, public assets, the, you know, the infringement of, of shadow by an adjacent building is really hotly contested. Yeah. Um, less contested is it at uh, a street level, but certainly where it impinges on, on park lands or any natural asset, it, it becomes a, a sticking point, I'd say. Yeah, so speaking about public spaces and park lands, and um, we should maybe bring up William White. Sure. Who sort of in the 1950s sort of started exploring. Um, he was commissioned by the New York Planning Commission um, to do studies into... New York and how street life um, interacts and what what causes successful street life, um, and I mean these are really interesting studies and he did multiple multiple of them throughout his career. Um, the first one being called the Street Life Project, 
Um, so, Anthony, maybe you can go into a little bit about what I think what he did is, is sort of rather empirically look at the way in which streets um, functioned. I mean, he famously, you know, took a camera and you know just basically filmed people working and walking and conversing on on the street and and started to look at you know what people actually like to do where do they like to stand where do they like to sit and things like that so um it's a very empirical approach to behavior human behavior in an urban metropolis like new york so you know some of his findings you know are not earth shattering in that he discovered, for instance, that people like to stand and talk in the middle of a walkway. You know, they don't step to one side. They tend to sort of locate themselves right where, you know, traffic is actually moving because somehow that feels more natural. It feels more um, more enjoyable to actually stop where, with your friend or, you know, someone that you meet along the way and, and converse and enjoy the daylight, enjoy the surroundings. But... Uh, it, it's actually a, a different situation to step outside of that circulation path. Uh, it, it's more natural for people to actually stay within that kind of activity zone, shall we say. Yeah, and that's a good time for one of his quotes, I think, which is a very basic quote. It says, what attracts people most, it would appear, is other people. Mm. So, I mean, he sort of came up with these sort of seven key criteria that were fleshed out in this documentary that he made, um, sort of outlining outlining each one. And they, these were the first being sitable space, um, the second being access to a, a sort of a lively street, the third being sun, uh, fourth food, then water, then trees, and then triangulation through conversation. So it's interesting that sun is an integral part of what he saw as people need within public spaces in order for them to be successful. Yeah, and I think if you think about cities, I mean, the the public domain is a is is something that is fascinating. I think the public domain, which which I would say is the the footpaths, the the squares, the streets. Uh, the park benches, the the low walls that kids can skateboard on, uh, those sorts of places. There's a kind of a, uh, a kind of an equalness of people that operate and exist in that realm. It's, it's you know rich or poor, uh, young or old, male or female. There's a kind of a, a social uh, equity that occurs at that level. It's very different to what happens at, in a building, you know, where the, you know, the higher you are on a, on a, in a building, you know, the, um, the richer you are, I suppose, the, the more famous you are. But at street level, there has, uh, has an equalising effect on the sort of population. And I think if you think about places like New York, they're incredibly attractive places to visit. Um, and it's really something to do with the street life. It's something to do with the culture at ground level. It's that hustle and bustle that I think, you know, you see in films, in artwork, uh, in, in a range of, you know, photos and things like that. So that kind of public realm is very closely associated with um, what is New York. And, of course, other cities are similar. But, you know, today we're really talking about the effect of tall buildings in a place like New York. Mm. 
No, I think it's good, it's good to talk about one of the topics that you just raised is about, uh, I think, diversity on streets. Is that you need that diversity in terms of uh, the type of people, um, the types of shops, the types of activities that are happening on your streets because that, that brings attention to them and that makes them enjoyable to watch, that makes them interesting to watch. Um, and that these, these things bring people to streets. And once mm. you start decreasing that diversity or removing diversity from your streets, then they become less interesting and you have less eyes on your streets, which brings, you know, Jane Jacobs up as a topic because um, she was very, very passionate about having eyes on the street for safety. Well, she was really a person that looked at at the city as an evolution of ideas, a, a kind of, you know, sort of incremental changes that occurred over a long period of time were, in her view, the best way to develop a city. So what, what I think is interesting about, say, New York, when you compare it to, say, a European city, say, an Italian city, what happens in, you know, a lot of these places like Florence or Siena and things like that, you have the piazza, which is really framed around a series, you know, the series of buildings will actually frame that public space. And that public space becomes essentially the heart and soul of that particular city. In places, in more modern cities like New York, um, you have a, essentially a grid structure of, of streets and buildings occupy those uh, spaces, those allotments. So essentially each, each allotment becomes an opportunity to speculate on the value of that property. The public space is really the space around the periphery of that building rather than being central to that space. So it's a very different dynamic. So that's why I think there is this kind of ongoing battle between the rights of the developer to build tall buildings, to maximise their yield, you know, property prices are obviously very high in New York versus the public amenity at street level. Mm. And I think New York sort of saw this as an issue within the 50s and through these conversations with, um, you know, William White and Jane Jacobs exploring these topics. And there was a, a regulation brought in in 1961, which is the Zoning Re Resolution, which introduced the idea of privately owned public spaces mm. or POPs which there are a few buildings, I think, completed before this, this um, regulation was brought in, um, like the Seagram building. Um, I think it was finished in the late 50s. And it, it sort of provided public space to the people on its own land. And we start to see this as a, as a concept being explored. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea is that you give part of your land over to the public realm but it enables you to build a taller building on that particular site. So you're effectively trading part of your land at ground level in order to get more height um, at the building level. Mm. So this is used, you know, throughout the world, throughout the sort of Western world as a, as a, as a development approach that allows you to build tall buildings and give something back to the public realm. Mm. And which in theory seems like a good idea. And I suppose this sort of raises the idea of when you have a privately owned public space, it becomes designed and does it become over-designed? And therefore, if we go back to the diversity sort of question, 
getting diversity into these privately owned public spaces is really difficult. Mm. And therefore, a lot of them become unsuccessful spaces or just dead spaces. And yet, they've allowed the buildings to talk, build higher to take more of that daylight amenity. So it's like, how do we, you know, how do they sort of get privately owned public spaces to be diverse and to be successful is, is, a, is a really difficult well, I challenge. Think, I think one of the things that works... The one of the things that makes it work is if the size of the allotment allows for this kind of development. So if you've got, you know, a reasonable quantity of land available to you, then, you know, the idea of trading part of your space at ground level in order to maximise your height sort of makes sense. So, you know, it, it, it seems to work where you have a reasonable size of allotment. It becomes a kind of a, a, a corporate way of giving back to the public realm. Mm. Now, it, it also fits in very neatly with the sort of, you know, modernist idea of singular buildings on a, you know, beautifully revered building within, you know, its own, with its own boundaries. It's not sort of connected or touching any other buildings. It's sort of singular, monumental with this beautiful forecourt which leads into the foyer of the building and, and on it goes. You know, the, the, there are plenty of examples throughout modernist history that, that, that you know, uses this as its, uh, as its prime example. Mm. And I suppose it also gives a setback to the neighbouring buildings to allow um, sort of daylight into their, into their buildings as well. So that regulation lasted, you know, that was introduced in about 1961. Mm. I think the problem becomes what happens when the building sites actually become smaller mm. and mm. what happens when you start to, I don't know, change the regulations. Um, and in New York, they, you know, it gets more complicated because in effect what they uh, introduced, and you can correct me off on the, on the dates, but... Um, it was actually part of the 1961 resolution. So yeah. the idea was that you could, in, in effect, buy the rights of your neighbours. Um, your your neighbour has the option of building a tall building, so you can buy that option from them and add it to your own site. But uh, the thing is it has to be your adjacent site, has to be an adjacent site. You can't buy that... Um, air right, shall we call it, from a building, you know, from a site that's, say, you know, half a kilometre away from your site, you have to buy the rights of the adjacent buildings, the adjacent sites from you. So technically, let's say it's a square site, um, there are four adjacent uh, sites um, around you, you can purchase their air rights and add it to yours and you can build, you know, the world's biggest building technically. Mm. Which, which sort of did change the the whole sort of way in which you sort of got this sort of well it, it was it was designed in terms of it, it would balance itself out because if you had a low-rise building that was only three stories when it could be 20 you could purchase those 17 and put on top of yours so you'd get this sort of you know up and down gradient effect throughout the city mm. which in theory everything should get access to daylight because it would organically grow mm. into a, a sort of a layer that would allow penetration still into the city below. Yeah, no, it does It does technically work. It's kind of like a mathematical formula that says you're allowed to build tall, but, you know, your adjacent buildings will be relatively low, so access to daylight is 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 maintained. Mm. Um, However, with all things, there's always... There's always a catch. And, um, you know, there's, there's always a smart developer who's trying to think of a way around the regulations, as they should, I mean, because that's their job. 
Um, so what actually happens is that you start to, developers start to configure their sites in such a way that they actually are touching many adjacent sites, you know, mm. so that they can then purchase the air rights from those adjacent sites in order to maximise the height that they can build on their particular site. Yeah, correct. So that's a... You'd purchase four sites and then rezone them into one and then that four, those four sites then touch 20 other sites. Then you can purchase the land rights from the 20 so other sites and put them on top of your building. We're effectively developed through these regulations a kind of trading scheme around natural light. We're saying that we want to get light to the buildings and here are some regulations that allow us to do it. Um, and, and, you know, a developer being a developer will do what he or she can in order to maximise height for their particular development. Mm -hmm. the, the, the downside of all of this is that uh, at ground level, you're taking away light from street level. So that's the consequence of trading uh, height for light. Yeah, correct. And I mean, that, that sort of loophole wasn't sort of really explored until quite recently. And there's been a few cases which have, um, which have been taken to court. Um, there's one um, which is underway at the moment, which is a 668-foot condo on Upper West Side. Um, when it's used the multiple block adjacent sort of loophole um, to construct a building that basically it didn't get planning approval but the developer thought it would so therefore they went ahead and started building it and they've almost completed this building but now it's actually been um, rejected and it's looking like they're going to have to take the top 20 floors off this building which has been constructed which brings up a whole new set of issues because this building's already pre-sold um, obviously the top 20 floors are the most valuable floors so what happens to this development eventually, well, it'd be very hard for it not to see it to go bankrupt, essentially. So this comes to the next point is that, and we're seeing this here in Melbourne is that, uh, as well, is that we're actually seeing much smaller, uh, because there's such pressure on places like New York for development opportunities, large allotments are scarce, you know, because just over time, uh, big sites get developed first, smaller sites get developed later. They're, un they're less economical, the, the smaller sites. Um, but as the you know, real estate pressure increases, those smaller sites also become attractive. Mm. And with uh, technology, the ability to build taller, we're suddenly finding ourselves with very small footprint buildings going incredibly tall. Mm. Um, and this was sort of brought about by the new regulation in 2017, which was only in, uh, you know, only in the greater east midtown of New York. Um, but essentially the purchasing of adjacent land rights was extended to district-wide land rights. So if you owned a site in the middle of greater east midtown, you could potentially purchase the unused air rights of any other site within the whole district, which has Mas created... basically means it's a free-for-all. It, it, it's sort of, there is no regulation at that point from what I can see. No, and then you get what 
they're getting now, which is like a thousand feet towers, which are super slender, just sort of, you know, one level apartments the whole way up, mm. up to, you know, like 50 million, 100 million or whatever you want to pay with these panoramic views in the clouds. I think it's worth talking about just what the experience is like living in one of these very, very tall buildings with the panoramic view all around. I mean, they're hugely desirable. They're, from what I can understand, they they um, they command a premium price in terms of real estate. So essentially, from what I understand, real estate agents are selling the view, selling the access to light, and you know, selling that kind of panoramic 360-degree view of the urban environment. But to actually live in that space, you'd have to wonder if it's all that it's, you know, cut out to be. I mean, essentially, I would imagine once you've taken in the view, you know, for the first 20 minutes or so, what what happens next? It, it, does it become a kind of wallpaper experience? Does it just become in the background and you know with with that quantity of glass around you is it really that good Mm -hmm. i mean because you are so detached from the ground plane which is kind of a funny idea in itself because they're also taking away sunlight and daylight from the ground plane but yeah there's not i mean there's a view there obviously and quite an amazing view and i think people are always um will pay for a view however not having that sort of view to the streetscape itself um you know it's not as interesting as being sort of you know four stories up from the street looking down on it mm. where you can there's actually see of, people and, there's a yeah. disconnection i think there's a there's clearly a disconnection with what's happening at street level you you can't actually see what's happening i, I can imagine once you go beyond six seven stories what's happening at street level becomes you are somewhat detached from you know the actual activity, as as I understand it. Yeah, correct. Um, and then it comes back to the sort of nature of these investments. A lot of these investments, as I understand it, are being bought by overseas um, people, people with obviously a lot of money, who either want a foothold in a place like New York. They've often been described as security boxes in the sky. That it's essentially a way of uh, uh, investing. A certain portion of your wealth in another city, another country, and a lot of these spaces, from what I understand, are largely unoccupied. Mm. I think they have some like the they, there was a study done into it, and occupancy rates of these new sort of penthouses in the sky are around five percent of the year. So, so they got, might come for say a month of the year, spend their time in New York, and then then go back to. I mean, a lot of them are bought by financial investors from like Wall Street and things. And I can imagine a lot of them are sort of potentially also a, an offset of tax or things like this as well um, from other countries. But yeah, it, it comes back to the point that these these apartments in the sky are overshadowing public space below and yet they're only being occupied for 5% of the time, which is sort of the core issue. So does it matter? Does, does the overshadowing of public space actually matter? Is that, is that the price that we pay for living in a city? That's, wow. the, that's the big question in my view. And my personal view is that a city like New York is an attractive city for a whole range of reasons, culturally, 
the architecture, uh, the people are incredibly, you know, it's an incredibly vibrant place, you know. Mm. I imagine that if you compromise what's happening at the ground plane to such an extent that it becomes, you know, not desirable, um, difficult to inhabit, then I suspect, you know, things start to change. I don't think we start to imagine it as a, as a, a kind of metropolis that we want to visit, a metropolis that we want to live in. I imagine it's somewhere where we sort of might actively seek to avoid. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's a, this is all sort of driven through this 2017 sort of introduction. Um, and we're seeing sort of the, the backlash, the same sort of similar backlash that came from 1915 from the Equitable Building. There's, there's all these studies and renders that, that have been done of all the proposed developments that are seeking to use the, the purchasing of district-wide land rights. And this is causing major overshadowing into Central Park, like long shadows, like a half of the park, um, which, you know, if it's extrapolated out to the development level that's happening already, it's going to cause issues. Um, Especially in the, the, the sort of dense parts of New York, the, the midtowns, the lower Manhattans, you know, which, you know, are dense already, being made more dense, um, is sort of compounding the issue. So it's reached a critical junction. And I think the uh, document which we've been reviewing called Bright Ideas is really a, um, a protest document. It's, it's really trying to, you know, valiantly to try and say, well, you know, without light, without fresh air, without access to nature, without access to, you know, those basic amenities, um, we start to find ourselves in a place where I don't think we really want to be, you know, mm. I'm, I'm sort of imagining Blade Runner, the sort of dystopian <laughs> future where, you know, essentially you, you live in this kind of dark sort of metropolis and, and you know, essentially the only light is, is through large-scale advertising, large-scale billboards that kind of illuminate the city. Um, great for films, but you know, I'm not really sure I want to live in that sort of place. Do, do you think um, it's a stretch to think that uh, these places can become uninhabitable? Well, I mean, it comes down to what people... This is why it's called New York City's Fight for Light 2019. <laughs> the city is fighting for light, the ground plane. If, if people don't actually stand up and say, hey, this is an amenity that we all need and it's being taken away through the planning regulations that have been brought in just as they did in 1915 is that they're going it's basically going to disappear because ultimately it is a fight for light you've got these developers which basically know that views and light sell mm. that's what gives their apartments so much value if you build an apartment without access to daylight and sunlight or without access to a view its price is completely different so, so we're talking about a public health issue at the end of the day. We're talking about access to light being and air and, and nature and all those things as being a public health issue, that, that the idea, its absence can actually drive, you know, the potential for um, very poor health outcomes in, yeah, in, in, in its population. And I you mean, shouldn't have to pay for that. 
And that's basically what it's becoming is they realize it's a valuable source. Mm. And if it's become so valuable that we don't even have access to it for free within our cities, then, I mean, it, it comes to the question of it's just, <laughs> you shouldn't have to pay for it is what I'm saying. It's like it should be something that you should be able to walk outside in your city and you should have access to it. Well, I think, I think at a minimum there has to be a balance between commercial endeavour or commercial enterprise and public good. And somehow the planning system as it currently stands in places like New York and I'm sure in other places has not given enough uh, weight to the public amenity, to the public good that comes from access to daylight. Uh, And you mentioned COVID-19. We are in the post-COVID-19 reality as we speak. Um, It was interesting that I read just the other day that there has been um, in Delhi, in in India, which have undergone very strict lockdown um, to curb the rise of of COVID-19, is that the smog has diminished and suddenly people are able to see blue skies again. And this is having a profound effect on the people of Delhi, that suddenly the smog has kind of lifted. So of all the benefits or of all the heartache that's come out of this terrible disease, it's also in a funny sort of a way brought, you know, access to light in in very dense urban environments where smog is plentiful. Um, And being able to see the blue sky, being able to see the nighttime sky has become... um, you know, that little bit more accessible than it was in the past. So it's a reminder of what we as humans kind of desire, which is, you know, good quality um, spaces to live in, uh, access to light, access to air, access to nature, all those really basic fundamentals that seem to be um, coming back into focus as a result of current events. Which, you know, you can't help but think about what William White talked about as well. Like the, those seven basic principles are all along those lines. And, I mean, it's interesting that it has, it has brought access to that sort of blue sky and people are appreciating that again. Um, and that's just another layer of like where we need to be going into the future is that I think, that, you know, the sustainability movement is, is a huge part of that, is removing all of that smog. And also preserving the access of daylight in the public realm through non-overshadowing. I mean, these are all things that sort of tie into that movement, I think. Mm, Absolutely. I went to uh, Shanghai in 2007, and uh, so just prior to the Olympic Games, and it had a profound effect on me. It was just not being able to see the sky and being sort of submerged in this kind of milky white kind of smog. I I don't know what the situation is like there currently, but... um, I, I just felt, uh, you know, unhappy uh, being in that environment. Not so much for me because I knew that I was leaving that environment in a week or so, but for the children and for the, you know, the people that were actually occupying that space to not have, you know, regular access to blue skies, to not being able to see what a star looks like, or you know, just the the magnitude of the the nighttime sky. You know, it was was profoundly depressing for me, and it was when I started to really think that sustainability has to be, you know, has to be really taken seriously. It was a real turning point for me as an architect. So, I think these things matter, and they matter that they're kind of in the conversation. 
So it's just bringing awareness to it. And I think that's what they're doing through this document. Mm. I think it's only a matter of time before there are amendments to the planning regulation, similar to the 1916 um, introduction. Um, I don't know whether you intentionally did it there, but you also talked about access to night sky, which is a topic that we're very keen to talk about soon. It could be even our next topic. <laughs> it will definitely be our next topic. And hopefully you won't have to wait four months for the next. We haven't released a podcast in, you know, since Christmas. And um, the reasons for that are that we had some technical difficulties. We actually recorded two podcast Jackson and some of them were both of them were very very good um, but unfortunately um, one had a strange one of the recordings had a strange beeping sound to it and the second one which was probably our best podcast by far <laughs> um, we can say that now anyway. mysteriously disappeared or mysteriously wasn't recorded yeah. so we're in April now, mid-April, COVID-19. Uh, we've bought our... We can't record at uh, the library that we used to record at, so we've gone out and purchased our own equipment. Uh, we've set it up in the office, and um, this is our first run at that. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're keen to do more and um, keen to explore the topic of uh, daylight and the nighttime sky in the next episode correct and now we can record whenever we like um as much as we like and um yeah so it's it's really just down to how much research we can do and in, in the space that we can do it in yep so, so please if you have any suggestions comments uh if you want to complain about the audio or you want to uh, <laughs> tell correct. us how good the audio is <laughs> uh we had as you know we had a gentleman from overseas write a detailed account of you know what we had done wrong uh, which we appreciated very much yes, um, correct. but we're, we're keen to continue we're keen, keen to make the podcast as good as we possibly can and make it as engaging as we can for you the listener so feel free to drop us a line at um at uh, the email which is i think light cities and architecture at gmail.com yeah i think or by uh, instagram or by instagram or light cities architecture you know, I'm sure you'll find us if you really want to, but we're, we're keen to hear what you've got to say. Perfect. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you in episode five.